0: I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have given us the gift of your word. Lord, we as your people strongly believe that on a daily basis, we need to hear from you. We believe that as a church family, we need to hear from you. Lord, we need to know what is true, what is right. We need to know what it is that you have for us as people of faith who are striving to follow Jesus, to live as disciples of Jesus in this world. And so, Lord, we approach every text, and this one is no exception, with hearts that are humble, with spirits that are eager to learn and to know, and not just fill our heads with knowledge, but actually experience heart change and organize our lives around the teaching of your word. So to that end, we pray that you would give us insight and understanding today, and that you would give us pliable hearts that want to apply the the truths of your word in our lives and in our church for your glory. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Now, we're going into Thanksgiving this week, of course. So if you showed up to church today like, hey, we're going to have a Thanksgiving message. And then we read that text, you're probably like, what's going on here? This isn't a very Thanksgiving-y type of a text. But we're working our way in our church right now through this epistle 1 Timothy, and we happen to be here in chapter 2, covering these verses this week. In the modern West, women are teachers and entrepreneurs, entertainers and athletes, military personnel and law enforcement. They run companies and they run countries. So in light of these facts, it's hard for many people to square this text that we've just read with the modern world as we understand it. Why would God authorize any sorts of restrictions on women's roles in the church if, in fact, that is what the Apostle Paul is teaching? Questions like these are the reason why there has been more ink spilled in the last 50 years over this text than just about any other text in the New Testament, perhaps even in the whole of Scripture. And there are wide-ranging opinions and interpretations on its meaning. For many readers and for many pastors, this text feels like a riddle wrapped inside a mystery, inside an enigma. And that's why we're going to just skip it and just move on to the next text. So chapter... No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. As we mentioned last week, As Christians, we believe that the Bible that you're holding in your lap this morning is the inspired Word of God. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3.16, we read all Scripture, that would include this text, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So every text matters. Every text is beneficial. Every text can help us to be trained in righteousness before God. So it would benefit us greatly this morning to spend our time unpacking this text together. The larger context, let's start there, of chapter 2, if you've been with us the last few weeks, is that the Apostle Paul is instructing his young protege, Timothy, on Corporate worship. When the church gathers together to worship King Jesus, Paul is instructing Timothy on what that ought to look like in the churches in Ephesus that Timothy is responsible for. And what we've learned so far is that when the church gathers, we are to be a prayerful people, and we're also to be a godly people. And now finally today we're going to realize that we are to be an orderly people. I've titled this sermon, Men and Women in the Church, Part 2. Last week, we covered verses 8 through 10, which we read a moment ago. This week, we're going to pick up in verse 11 and continue through verse 15. And again, we're talking about men and women in the church today. Let's take this text, starting in verse 11, piece by piece, and let's work through it and unpack it. Verse 11 again says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, this idea, this expression, and of course, verse 12 and 13 that follow are controversial as I've already alluded to. When we read this about women being quiet, women being submissive, I think for many of us, our minds go immediately to a bygone era where women were for to a large extent, treated as second-class citizens. For example, um, I dug up this advertisement from the 1950s, and this is an advertisement for men's neckties, but it says, show her it's a man's world. Now granted, men and women would love to be served breakfast in bed, right? It's a wonderful thing. But the depiction here in this advertisement in the 1950s clearly shows this man kind of in this dominant position in his wife, presumably, Basically, serving like she's a butler or something. Um, and again, you read texts like this, and you almost, it's like our minds go back to that, and we're saying, is this what God has in mind? Or is this what the Apostle Paul is advocating for in a text like this in 1 Timothy chapter 2? Well, as we'll see in our message today, the answer to that question is no, not at all. It'd be helpful for us in interpreting this text to know that not only is this text controversial for you and I in the 21st century in America, but this text was deeply controversial for its original audience 2,000 years ago. Whereas we get hung up on the second half of the verse, the quietly with all submissiveness section, you need to know that the original audience who would have read this letter in the churches of Ephesus would have been hung up on the first part of this verse. The part that says, let a woman learn. You have to understand that when the Apostle Paul was writing this letter to Timothy, we're talking about a time in history in a part of the world where a woman's testimony was not considered valid evidence in a court of law. You need to understand that we're talking about a time in the world with almost zero exceptions, when a woman was never given the role or the status of a teacher in the community, and not just not given the status of a teacher, but not even given the status of a disciple or a learner under a teacher. One pastor explains it this way. He says, a woman's learning is taken for granted in most developed Western nations today. But in most of the ancient world, And in many parts of today's world, female education could not be taken for granted. Indeed, in most of the religious world today—Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, etc.—teaching women is not a spiritual priority. End quote. But we need to understand that that is not the case for Christianity. What do we want to say to women in the church from this text? to begin with. The first thing that we need to say to the women in the church is let the women learn. Let the women learn. This makes Paul one of the most progressive writers of his day. Paul is calling for the women of the church to be learners. After all, women just like men are called to be full-fledged disciples of the Lord Jesus. Women just like men are called to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, get this, with all of their mind, and with all of their strength. Women, just like men, are called to make disciples of all of the nations. Women, just like men, are called to live a life filled with good works as they seek to love their neighbors as they love themselves. And women, just like men in the Christian community, are empowered by the Holy Spirit with spiritual gifts that are supposed to be used to build up the body of Christ Christ, of which they are members. So no matter what else we might say about this passage, we must understand the radical and empowering call for women to pull up a seat at the table in the school of Christ and live their lives as full-fledged disciples of the Lord. The perspective of the New Testament is not to restrict a woman in ministry, but to empower women in ministry. And this is why Jesus' ministry team included women, as did the Apostle Paul's. Okay, pastor, that's all fine and dandy. But what about the apparent restriction on women's ministry right there in verse 12? Well, let's walk through the passage in parts. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. It should be known that church life at this early point in its history allowed for a lot more congregational involvement than most modern Western churches allow for. In fact, churches at this time were were small house churches meeting in somebody's home. They actually were probably a lot more like our small group experiences in church today than they are our corporate worship experiences. There were multiple speakers often. There were prophetic words that were being shared. There was the singing of hymns and there was a love feast. That's not what it sounds like, by the way. Men and women together experiencing and contributing to the life of the church. Now, we need to know that what Paul is talking about in this text is he's talking about a specific portion of that broader worship experience, that broader worship service. He's talking about the teaching time of service. What I find so interesting too Is that what Paul is calling the women to do in this text, namely to learn quietly with all submissiveness, is really not any different from the way that both women and men sit through the teaching portion of church in modern Western churches today. For example, we're doing the teaching portion of our church service right now, and there is nobody, male or female, here that is objecting or throwing out questions. It's, it's basically a monologue during this portion of the service. And as members of the church, men and women, we are attentively, hopefully, listening to the teaching of God's word. And it's in this context that Paul tells the church that women should learn, but don't disturb, rather they should submit and obey. The word in the ESV that we've read, quietly, is a helpful word in verses 11 and 12. Some translations, and if you don't have ESV today, you might notice that some translations use the word silence there. That a woman is to learn silently or in silence. And that's an unhelpful word because silence conveys the idea of a complete ban on a woman from speaking at all at church. The concise Oxford Dictionary translates this word, making little or no noise, free from activity, disturbance, and excitement. It carries the idea, not of not saying anything, it carries the idea rather of being attentive, being free from disturbance or activity, being attentive. So the idea is that we're not sitting in church on Instagram looking at stories We're not sitting in church conversing with our neighbor at length, especially if it's not related to the teaching. We're not getting up and sitting down and walking around constantly throughout the church service making a distraction. The idea here is that the women are to learn attentively as opposed to being a disturbance. So Paul is calling the women to learn just like the men. But evidently, we see in verse 12, they are not to teach. Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. What do we make of verse 12 here? And this prohibition against women teaching in the church. One of the questions we need to ask is, is Paul basically putting a a blanket prohibition against all forms of teaching, or does he have a specific style, type, or form of teaching in mind? The best way to answer that question is to look at the rest of the New Testament and see if in the New Testament we have any examples of women teaching. And the answer to that question is yes. In Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we read in that passage that the older women of the church are supposed to teach the younger women in the church. And then over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul tells Timothy, this young pastor, he tells him to remember from whom he learned the sacred Scriptures. And of course, if you read that whole letter, you know he's referring not to Timothy's dad who was an unbeliever, He's referring to Timothy's mother and grandmother in chapter 1 of that letter, verse 15. These faithful women who taught their son Timothy, or grandson Timothy, the Scriptures and the Word of God. So we have an example, even here in the pastoral epistles, of the older women teaching the younger women, and of women teaching children. And then, of course, there's the famous example in the book of Acts of this noble woman named Priscilla, who along with her husband Aquila, took a prominent first century preacher, a man named Apollos, who was a powerful orator, a powerful preacher in the church, and they pulled him aside privately and they better instructed him in his doctrine. And both Priscilla and Aquila were involved in this teaching of Apollos together. Here's what we read in Acts 18.26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, talking about Apollos. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they, plural, took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Also, we read in Colossians 3.16, where Paul is writing to the entire church, men and women, we read these words. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, he writes, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Lastly, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, women and men are expected to pray and to prophesy in the gathered assembly. As we see all of these examples, it should be clear to us that whatever we want to say about Paul's restriction on teaching for women, this isn't a universal ban or a blanket restriction against women sharing God's Word or teaching others the truths of Scripture. So the question becomes, well, then what kind of teaching is Paul prohibiting? The answer to that question in context is this. The kind of teaching that is an exercise of authority over the men of the church. This is why some people take the phrase this way in verse 12, to teach in such a way as to take authority. So the issue here then is not women teaching as we've seen the women or the issue is women teaching in such a way that they are exercising authority over the men in the church. Hmm. Okay, so what kind of teaching is that? It's like we keep having to take this layer after layer. It's sort of like when you look up a word in the dictionary, have you ever done this? And you're looking for the answer, you're looking for the definition for the word and it doesn't actually give it to you. It's like you look up in the dictionary following definition To follow. Thanks. Now i got to go look up follow, I guess, to figure this out. So we have to keep unpacking this. But what kind of teaching, then, is a type of teaching that exercises authority over the men? In looking at the rest of this letter, 1 Timothy, we see the connection, and this is very important for us to understand, we see the connection of teaching and authority bound together in the office of an elder. We'll see this next week as we study the office of the elder, and we learn that an overseer or an elder must be able to teach. But most clearly, we see this connection between authority and teaching and the office of elder over in chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5.17. Listen to this verse. Paul writes, Let the elders who rule well, there's the authority, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Putting these things together, it seems most likely that what Paul is prohibiting the women from is teaching as an exercise of the office of elders or pastors. It is the pastors in the New Testament who are called to be the public teachers or preachers of the gathered assembly of the church. And that office as a pastor or an elder, those are synonyms in the New Testament, that office as we're going to see next week is reserved for qualified men. So in light of this, what can we say about women teaching in the church? Well, it seems that the only restriction that we can place from the scriptures would be on women teaching in the official capacity of an elder of the church. Therefore, any other arena in the church must be left open to the wisdom and the guidance of that particular local church and its elders. And I think in the modern West, where you and I are doing ministry, it would, it would be a matter of wisdom and witness for us to do everything in our power to encourage competent women to teach in other roles in the church so as not to create an unnecessary stumbling block in our culture. In other words, if the Scriptures are not prohibiting women from teaching in other ways besides teaching as an elder in the church, Again, I think as a matter of wisdom and witness, we would do well to say, when we have competent women, allow them to teach in other roles in the church. However, if you and I were ministering in a place where women teaching would be a stumbling block in the church, perhaps if you and I were in a church in the Middle East, then it would be a matter of wisdom and witness for us to say, you know, we should probably restrict women from teaching at all levels in the church so as to not be a stumbling block in that culture. Now, one of the mistakes that is often made at this point is that people try to apply what we're talking about here outside of the context that it's intended for. And so the thinking goes, if there's a restriction on that ultimate leadership position in the church, the position of an elder, if there's a restriction there on women leading, then the thinking goes like this. It would follow that women shouldn't be the ultimate leaders in any organization or any other place in society. We need to be mindful of the fact that what Paul is talking about here is the church. That's what this is directed to, is the church. He's not speaking about life in the broader community. He's speaking about life in God's family. Now, one of the objections that is oftentimes raised in certain churches to the idea that women should not be pastors is that this instruction that we're talking about here today is relative to this church only. Only. So the argument goes like this Ephesus had a real problem with uh, women in authoritative positions because of the religious cult there. Remember, we talked about this last week. Uh, There was a massive religious cult in Ephesus, or Ephesus rather. Um, Diana was the goddess that was worshipped there, and all the priests in this cult were females. And so people want to argue that maybe this instruction is only for the church at Ephesus. One of the problems, and there are several, but the main problem with that view is Paul says the same thing to another church in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 33 and 34. Look at this reference. He says, as in all the churches of the saints. It's a very universal nature to this. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Another objection that is oftentimes made here is that this instruction only applies to this cultural moment. So because 2,000 years ago we were living in a very patriarchal society, this teaching was relevant for that culture, but it's not binding beyond that cultural moment. But we need to notice here that Paul tethers the argument that he makes here in the next verses to creation not to culture. If this was an argument that only mattered for that culture, you would expect Paul to say something like this. Timothy, listen, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority in the church. And then you'd expect him to say something like this, because it would be a stumbling block to the onlookers, for example, who are looking at our church or something like that, that would be culturally driven. But that's not the direction that the apostle Paul goes. Rather, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority in the church. And then he tethers the argument back to creation with a reference here to Adam and Eve. We're at this point ready now to to offer instruction to the men of the church. We've talked about how women are called to be learners in the church. What about the men in the church? Well, just like with the women, where we said, let the women learn, our starting point for men is to say, let the men learn. Because as we've talked about, women and men in the church are called to be full-fledged disciples of Jesus Christ. So let the the men learn and the qualified men lead. And I use qualified intentionally, and we're going to talk at length about that next week. Let the men learn and the qualified men lead lead. So the question becomes, why is the position or the office of an elder reserved for qualified men? Well, Paul gives us this reason anchored in creation in verses 13 and 14. Let's read it again. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. At creation, God established the unique roles that men and women would operate in. And you'll notice that Paul's argument here in verses 13 and 14 have, has two points to it. There's two reasons that he gives. The first reason is this. He says, Adam was created first. Now, firstborn, the firstborn in the Scriptures always refers to a position of authority and a position of responsibility. If we go back to Genesis and we look at the creation order, we learn that Eve came from Adam and is called his helpmate. Now, that reference or that description as a helpmate is not implying that Eve is inferior to Adam. It's not a word that's trying to communicate that she stands next to her husband as somehow his assistant. He's the superintendent on the job site, and she's the worker. That's not what the word means. In fact, if you do a word study on that that word helper, what you come to understand is that actually Scripture uses that same word as a description of God himself who would come and aid and deliver his people. We certainly, as God's people, don't look at God and go, well, he's just kind of my sidekick who helps me get my job done. No, 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 the notion in the, in the Bible of helpmate is actually of, listen, an indispensable partner without who, without that person's help, you couldn't get the job done. In other words, God gave Adam and Eve a job to do at creation, which I'm going to read for you in a moment. And if either of those Parties did not exist. The man or the woman. We could not complete the job. We are indispensable to one another. Genesis 1, and 28. Listen to what we read here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So we read that and go patriarchal. It's all about men. No, no, no. He explains himself. Male and female, he created them. So they're both created in God's image. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. If you're old enough to understand biology, you know men can't do that command. They're on their own. The only way for for humanity to fulfill God's vision for them is men and women working in concert, being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it. And he says to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates men and women. And listen, they are equal in worth and in dignity. And God has given them a mission in the world. But listen... They fulfill that mission, this is so key, not by abolishing their unique roles, but rather through embracing them. Again, they fulfill the mission that God has for them in the world, not by abolishing their unique roles, but rather by embracing them. The Christian view of the sexes, male and female, is this, that men and women are equal, but they're not identical. Just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal, but have different roles or functions in the Godhead, so too are men and women. We are equals, but we're not identical. We have unique roles and functions. The biblical model for the nuclear family is that the husband is the head of the wife. We see that in other texts. And that headship idea speaks of both the intimate connection between husband and wife, Right, You cannot sever the head from the body. So it speaks of the intimate interconnectedness of husband and wife, but it also speaks of his responsibility to lead the family. Now I know when we talk about leadership in a family, for some of us, we have a little bit of resistance to that or apprehension. What does that mean? And couldn't that be dangerous? It certainly could if we were to understand authority and leadership in the way that the world understands it. But what we need to understand is that Jesus completely inverted our understanding of leadership and authority in the body of Christ. Do you remember when the disciples were arguing that one time? Who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom, Jesus? Oh, pick me. I want to sit on your right hand. I want to sit on your left hand, the positions of power and authority. And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, okay, i got to straighten this out. He says, listen. He says, those who are going to be leaders, uh, those who are who are basically in charge in my kingdom, he says, listen, they're not going to lord it over other people the way that the Gentiles do. But rather, they're going to be servants. Really, Literally, the, the word is slaves of all. So Jesus inverts authority to where authority is not authoritative or authoritarian or domineering authority in the Christian framework is actually servant leadership. It's the idea that, that my exercise, exercise of authority, excuse me, is me getting down underneath somebody else and serving them to better them. That's what Jesus did. And that's what he calls us to do. And it's not a surprise then that when we get to Ephesians chapter five, the most extensive teaching on marriage in the new Testament, What does Paul say to the husbands? He does not deny the reality that the husband is the head of the home. But what he does is, again, he reinterprets headship, leadership, authority in light of the gospel. And he says, therefore, a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. The type of leadership that God calls men to in the home, again, is not an authoritarian, domineering leadership as if he's some monarch sitting on a throne or that image that we saw 20 minutes ago on the screen. The model of leadership for men in the home is that he, like Jesus, is the first to die. He, like Jesus, lays down his life as a sacrifice for the betterment of his bride, for the betterment of his children, for the betterment of his family. And just like we as Christians are eager to submit to and follow a Savior like that, when a husband leads that way, I don't know a woman in the world who wouldn't say, I'd like to be married to a man like that, who loves me tenderly, who cares for me, who considers me more significant than himself. That is the type of leadership God is calling men to in the home and listen, church. I know I'm going so long today. I'm going to wrap this up. But this is very important because it's very controversial. Listen, it's not a surprise then that when we move from the nuclear family, the home, into God's family, the church, that the model follows over. To where God is saying in the church that, again, that that position of authority, if you want to use that word, or leadership is reserved for qualified men. Now, church leadership, even leadership in the home is not absolute. That's another sermon. But that's another thing we need to keep in our minds at all times. A woman does not submit to her husband under all circumstances. Again, like he's some monarch. If a husband is abusing his wife, we would not say submit. We would say get away. And that man needs to be dealt with. And in the same way in the church, a pastor or elder's authority is not absolute. And submission is not absolute. We all are submitted to Christ and his word. The second reason for the argument here, though, is this. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was and became a transgressor. Now you read that in some interpreters historically have said, what what Paul's saying here is that women are more gullible than men are. See, Adam wasn't deceived. He's the smart one. The woman was deceived and she became a transgressor. Therefore, women can't lead because they're less intelligent or they're more gullible or something like that. If that were the case, if Paul was like, listen, women are just not as smart. Women are more gullible. It would be shocking then that he would allow for women to teach anybody not just men. Why would a more gullible, less educated person be responsible for teaching other women, teaching children, discipling people? That wouldn't make any sense. So the issue is not that women are are more gullible. What Paul's getting at here in the creation narrative is that what Eve did is she inverted God's order for the home. Rather than following the instruction that came through her husband, Because when you go back to Genesis, you'll notice this. God never told Eve not to eat of the tree. God told Adam that. But Eve knew when Satan tempted her that she wasn't supposed to eat of the tree. The reason she knew that is because her husband had shared that with her. He taught her that information. Rather than following the instruction that came through her husband, Eve rejected it and she embraced the teaching of the serpent instead. So don't miss these strong connections here. Paul is instructing the women in the church at Ephesus to not follow in the footsteps of Eve, making the mistake of inverting the order for the family that God established. Here in God's family, the church, the women are being called to resist that temptation and instead to embrace their God-given and unique role as women. And this brings us to our final, very, very simple verse for interpretation, verse 15. Right, this isn't challenging at all. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What in the world is the Apostle Paul talking about? It's almost like Paul has ADD here. It's like he's talking about order in the church. He's talking about being prayerful, being godly. He's talking about how women should be learners. He's talking about creation in Adam and Eve. And then he's like, oh, look, a squirrel. It's like, where's this random or seemingly random connection to childbearing coming from? Let me work through this as quickly as I can for you. He just referenced Eve, notice, as a transgressor. If we go back to that moment in time, Genesis 3, he's referring to the fall when Eve ate of that forbidden fruit. Notice the consequences of that decision when Eve ate of the fruit that are told to us in Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Notice the two things that 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 consequence are alluding to. Number one is childbearing, painful childbirth. So we can understand how Paul can now start talking about childbirth. And then second, a desire for, or you could translate it against your husband, but he shall rule over you. So there's this connection. It it does make sense what Paul's talking about. He's not chasing a random squirrel. Uh, There's this connection to male headship and also to childbearing. Now that was a consequence for Eve's sin in Genesis or a judgment for the woman's sin there. And it would be easy for women and domineering men to want to look at that and go, therefore, women are bad or women are second class or women are whatever, fill in the blank. But verse 15 is so beautiful and so powerful because verse 15 is actually a hopeful promise for women. It reminds us that this judgment on the woman was not ultimate. Eve is not left without hope, and nor are her daughters. Eve and all women can be saved through childbearing. Okay, what does that mean? How so? Um, If women have children, do they go to heaven? No, right? That is not the way the gospel works. So he's not talking about that. Um, Are Christian women promised that they're going to somehow be delivered through having kids, unlike non-Christian women? In other words, Christian women aren't going to die in childbirth, but non-Christian women will. Certainly that's not true because history has proven that wrong. So what does he mean that women will be saved through childbirth? Well, notice in verse 15, he says, she in the singular, which is a reference back to Eve. He's saying she will be saved through childbearing. Also, there's an article in the Greek text in front of the word childbirth. So you could actually translate this, yet she will be saved through the Childbearing. So it's possible that Paul is actually referencing here a singular childbirth. And it's not coincidental that in Genesis 3, in the verse right before we hear this judgment on the woman, we have the first messianic prophecy about Jesus as God judged the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What we see here is that Eve's consequence also becomes her deliverance because someday there would be a child born of Eve's descendants who would, listen to me, crush the head of the serpent. And through faith in God's promised one, Eve and all women, notice how he goes to the plural there, they can be saved. Even all women can now be saved. So overall, church, Paul's message here is clear. We might be a little confused on verse 15, perhaps. But overall, here's what Paul is explaining to the church. In the household of God, women are to be learners. And by extension, full-fledged disciples who partner with the men of the church to fulfill God's mission in the world. And they do this, listen by using all of the God-given knowledge and gifts that He's given to them. And in the household of God, men are likewise to be learners. And by extension, full-fledged disciples of Jesus Christ who partner with the women of the church to fulfill God's mission in the world. And they do this by using all of the God-given knowledge and gifts that He's given to them. And... For those men who are qualified and confirmed by the rest of the church, they are called and equipped by God to serve in the role of elder or pastor as all the members of the church submit to the leadership and authority of its elders. So two points of application, and we'll close. The first is this. Church, let's ensure that at Apostles Church, we're the type of church that is encouraging women to be learners. That we are the type of church that is challenging women to be theologically deep. And that we're the type of church that is empowering women to use their gifts. Listen to me, even teaching gifts in appropriate ways for the building up of the body of Christ. And number two, let's ensure that we are honoring God's design for the church by calling qualified men to the pastorate in our assembly. And I believe, honestly, with all of my heart, that if we as a church will uphold these two priorities, we'll be honoring to the Lord, we'll be encouraging to one another, and we'll be the type of church that's attractive to the watching world around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we approach this text today from a posture of heart that believes 2 Timothy 3.16. We believe that every single text is inspired. We believe that every single text is profitable. And Lord, of course, this text has a lot of confusing elements to it. A lot of things that make us scratch our heads and have to dig a lot deeper to try to understand what it means. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a church that is a learning church, that we would be a church that is not content with just a shallow kind of pop culture Christianity, but we would be learners, that we would want to rightly handle your word, that we would want to be a people that are equipped for every single good work, men and women in this church. And Lord, I pray that in our eagerness to see our sisters in the church affirmed and encouraged and empowered to serve you, that we would on one hand not restrict them unnecessarily, but on the other hand, that we would be a church that always honors the instruction of your word from Genesis through Revelation that we see there in the creation account of these unique roles and functions between the sexes. And Lord, I pray that we would not blur that. There's so much pressure in our culture to to try to merge men and women into one as if there are no distinctions. And yet, Lord, we know that women are beautiful and powerful and unique and that men are the same, that they're unique and that there's something glorious and something to be treasured about what it means to be a man. And we pray that we would be a church that holds these realities in tension, And that we would be a church that honors you and glorifies you as we do that. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. And we pray that you would continue to stir us up to worship as we sing and to worship as we fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.